Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, today. Matthew Ho, Senior Fellow with the Center for International Policy and 100% Disabled Marine Combat Veteran, joins us to discuss President Biden's plan to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. For our weekly Earth Watch, in the context of our ongoing coverage of the climate catastrophe, we speak with Devlin Kuyek on corporate greenwashing and small farmers and social movement struggles for community-controlled and biodiversity-based food systems, and Washington, D.C. food security campaigners who are with the Gray Panthers of Washington, D.C. and the National Welfare Rights Union, joins us to discuss an upcoming webinar focusing on poverty and food security in the Washington, D.C., Maryland areas. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Afghanistan. He's meeting with the country's leaders a day after President Biden announced he will withdraw the remaining 2,500 U.S. troops from the country by September 11th. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. NATO immediately followed suit, saying its roughly 7,000 forces in Afghanistan would also be departing within a few months. The withdrawal of U.S. troops does not mean an end to U.S.-backed forces. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said even after the pullout, the U.S. military will keep counterterrorism capabilities in the region to keep pressure on what he termed extremist groups operating within Afghanistan. Austin declined to say where those forces would be positioned or how many there would be. The White House is announcing the expulsion of 10 Russian diplomats and announcing a new round of sanctions against Russia. The moves are in response to Russian alleged interference in last year's presidential election, as well as the hacking last year of federal government agencies. The U.S. for the first time explicitly linked that intrusion to a Russian intelligence service. The sanctions are the first retaliatory action announced against the Kremlin for the hack, which is known as the Solar Winds breach. Russia swiftly denounced the U.S. actions and warned of retaliation. Former Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police officer Kim Potter faces her first court appearance for the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright. Potter, who quit her job on the Brooklyn Center Force two days after killing Wright, is expected to appear via Zoom this afternoon. A county prosecutor charged her yesterday with second-degree manslaughter. She was arrested and later freed after posting $100,000 bond. The police chief also resigned after saying the fatal shooting appeared to be a case of Potter confusing her taser and her handgun. 
many protesters and Wright's family members have rejected that, saying either they don't believe it or that the incident reflects bias in policing, with Wright stopped for an expired car registration and ending up dead. The Reverend Al Sharpton is among them. When you look at the fact that you're dealing with a 26-year veteran, if she didn't know in 26 years the difference in size and weight of a gun as opposed to a taser, then how was she a veteran in policing? How was she even on the force that long? Hundreds of protesters braved the snow and rain to head back to the streets for a fourth night to protest Wright's killing. The defense could rest its case today in the murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. A forensic pathologist testifying for the defense contradicted prosecution experts who said George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen because Chauvin knelt on his neck for nine and a half minutes. Defense witness Dr. David Fowler, the former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland, testified Floyd died from sudden cardiac arrest as a result of his heart disease, the fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system, and potential carbon monoxide poisoning from exposure to vehicle exhaust. Fowler testified he would classify the manner of death as undetermined rather than homicide, as the county's chief medical examiner ruled. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell launched an aggressive cross-examination, attacking Fowler's findings, including the testimony about potential carbon monoxide poisoning. Did you see any air monitoring data that actually would give you any information as to what amount of carbon monoxide, if any, would have been in Mr. Floyd's breathing zone? No, because it was not tested. It was a yes or no question. You haven't seen any, have you? I have not seen any data. Under cross-examination, Feller also agreed that Floyd should have been given immediate attention when he went into cardiac arrest because there was still a chance to save him at that point. A group of federal lawmakers plans to announce legislation today to expand the U.S. Supreme Court by four justices. Senator Ed Markey is among them. He tweeted last night, quote, who agrees we should expand the Supreme Court? Other lawmakers involved in the effort include House Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler. Progressive activists have urged an expanded court. They will be joining lawmakers. A few days ago, President Biden ordered a study of adding seats to the Supreme Court. He created a commission that will spend the next 180 days examining the issues of expanding the court and instituting term limits for its justices. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Before we uh, go into our planned segments for today, we want to pause to remember Ramsey Clark, who died on April 9th, 2021. He's a former U.S. Attorney General and campaigner for world peace. Uh, Ramsey Clark held senior positions in the U.S. Department of Justice under Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson serving as Attorney General from 1967 to 1969. As Attorney General, he was known for his staunch opposition to the death 
penalty, his vocal support for civil liberties and civil rights, and his dedication in enforcing antitrust provisions. Ramsey Clark supervised it supervised the drafting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968. He was active in the anti-Vietnam War movement and visited North Vietnam in 1972 as a protest against the bombing of Hanoi. After leaving public office, Ramsey Clark led many progressive activism campaigns, including opposition to the war on terror. He also uh, was part of uh, that uh, famous case following the police riot in Chicago um, with uh, Tom Hayden and others um, at the Democratic National Convention. Um, he, Ramsey Clark was the last surviving member of the cabinet of Lyndon B. Johnson. He was a vocal defender of all forms of resistance to oppression, a leader always willing to challenge the crimes of the United States wars at home as well as abroad. He remained optimistic that the power of people could determine history. Um, Ramsey Clark was a founder of the International Action uh, Center. Ramsey Clark will be remembered by people and struggles around the world as a prominent individual who used his name, reputation, and legal skills to defend people's movements and leaders who the corporate media have thoroughly uh, demonized. There's a lot more that could be said, of course, about Ramsey Clark, the, what he was able to achieve in his life and his contributions to movement for change are just uh, too numerous uh, to say right now. But we do want to honor him. We do want to remember uh, Ramsey Clark again, who passed away on April 9th, 2021. And in the tradition of Sojourner Truth, we will now in in remembrance of Ramsey Clark, play the morning song, uh, which is sung in uh, Dida uh, by the album uh, Na Friki. <laughs> us here at Sojourner Truth remembering Ramsey Clark. Now, following the 9-11 attacks in the United States that left 2,977 people dead and 25,000 injured, in response to those attacks on October 7, 2001, the U.S. government invaded Afghanistan, claiming it was a war on terror. The attacks were said by the U.S. to have been planned um, by al-Qaeda. The attacks on the United States have been planned by al-Qaeda on Afghan soil. 
George W. Bush launched a military offensive against the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Not only did this offensive kill innocent Afghans, including women and children, it has also festered into becoming an almost two-decade-long occupation and war. The United States, the wealthiest country on the planet, has been bombing, droning, and occupying, occupying Afghanistan, one of the most impoverished nations on the planet. The occupation has taken the lives of at least 2,300 U.S. troops and more than 100,000 uh, Afghan people, according to most estimates. Thousands more have been injured physically and mentally with physical disabilities and post-traumatic stress disorders. The total military expenditure in Afghanistan from October 2001 until September 2019 was $778 billion, this according to the U.S. Department of Defense. This is enough money, according to the National Priorities Project, to feed, clothe, house, and educate all poor and low-income people in the United States. And as we know, according to the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, there are well over 140 million poor or low-wealth people in the United States. On February 29, 2020, the Trump administration and the Taliban signed a peace agreement in Doha, Qatar. The stipulations of the deal included the withdrawal of all U.S. and NATO troops from Afghanistan, a Taliban pledge to prevent al-Qaeda from operating in areas under Taliban control, and talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. The Trump administration agreed to an initial reduction of its force level from 13,000 troops to 8,600 by July 2020, followed by a full withdrawal within 14 months if the Taliban keeps its commitments. Trump set the deadline for withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan at May 1st of this year. The U.S. also committed to closing five military bases within 135 days and ending economic sanctions on the Taliban by August 27, 2020. The deal was supported by China, Russia, and Pakistan, although it didn't involve the government of Afghanistan, interestingly enough. However, despite the peace agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, Insurgent attacks against Afghan security forces were reported to have increased in the country. In the 45 days after the agreement, that is between March 1st and April 15th of 2020, the Taliban conducted more than 4,500 attacks in Afghanistan, this according to Reuters. This represented an increase of more than 70% as compared to the same period in the previous year. By July 1st, 2020, the U.S. House Armed Services Committee overwhelmingly voted in favor of a National Defense Authorization Act amendment to restrict uh, Donald Trump's ability to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban began in Doha, Qatar on September 12th of uh, 2020. 
And uh, now on Wednesday, April 14th, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that he plans to fully withdraw troops from Afghanistan, not by the May 1st deadline set by uh, the Trump administration, but by September 11th of this year, ending 20 years of U.S. military occupation. Uh, Let us go to a clip now. Um, just uh, giving us the situation as it stands now. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. Well, the troop withdrawal can't come soon enough for the Taliban. They want all foreign forces out by May 1st, a deadline agreed to by former U.S. President Donald Trump. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in the Afghan capital. Yeah, I mean, the Taliban is the key uh, dynamic here. As I said, they recently suggested they weren't even going to go to the peace talks in Istanbul that are a key part of the Biden plan here and just recently suggested this morning that they've got 16 days for the Americans to entirely withdraw. As I say, they made these noises before, and many think they do need the legitimacy of transitional government here, as the U.S. is suggesting, alongside the Afghan government, to keep aid flowing in when eventually get their hands on the levers of power. This country is struggling to keep its lights on to feed itself at times, and if the Taliban want to control more of it as the actual government, in some ways they're going to need to deal with that. Uh, NATO said, as many expected, NATO allies can't really sustain themselves here without the U.S. infrastructure and muscle, frankly. They'll be leaving at the same time, too. Uh, And the Afghan government are the key real uh, wild card in this. Strange to say that. They've been opposed to the dynamic of the peace process. They wanted elections first before a transitional government. But today there was a very tame and, I think, respectful statement from President Ashraf Ghani, who said he respected the decision and they wanted to make the transition as smooth as possible. This is a presidential palace that fully knows uh, it faces a superior force in terms of the Taliban. They made statements about how they can keep them at bay. They're going to desperately want more assistance for their armed forces, presumably hope that US air power might be at their back, possibly, in the months ahead, or that's definitely not part of what Biden's proposing. Look, America's leaving this war, but the war doesn't end because there are no longer two and a half thousand troops here. It continues for the Afghans in a darker new phase where the insurgency that caused so many lives to be lost may now be calling the shots. So this is, you know, as you say, not something in the forefront of many American minds. And it'd be interesting to see quite how the world pays attention to it now the international presence draws down. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reporting there from Kabul, Afghanistan. NATO's Secretary General says the troop withdrawal is not the end, but the beginning of a new way of working with Afghanistan. He says allies must turn from combat forces to diplomacy, economic tools and humanitarian aid. Our drawdown will be orderly, coordinated and deliberate. plan to complete the withdrawdown for all our troops within a few months. Any Taliban attacks on our troops during this period will be met with a forceful response. Now uh, it is time to uh, bring our forces home. We will uh, work very closely uh, together in the weeks and months ahead uh, on a safe, deliberate Uh, and coordinated uh, withdrawal of our forces from Afghanistan. But even as we do that, uh, our commitment to Afghanistan, uh, to its future, uh, will remain.
The U.S. Secretary of State also pledged to stand with the people of Afghanistan, especially those who helped U.S. personnel. But he dodged a question about Afghan citizens seeking asylum in the U.S. All righty. Uh, there you go. That was a clip from uh, CNN. What I'd like to do now is to welcome Matthew Ho, senior fellow with the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Network. He is a 100% disabled Marine combat veteran, and in 2009, he resigned from his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the escalation of the war. Matthew, welcome. Hi, good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so Matthew, you did that protest, uh, resigning um, about the escalation of the war. Your reaction now to the announcement of a complete uh, troop pullout, or what we're told will be a complete uh, troop pullout by September 11th? Well, this is potentially good news uh, for the Afghan people because foreign forces need to leave in order for the peace process to go forward. Uh, the A Afghanistan has been at war for more than 40 years. Uh, this war begins in 1978, so a full year prior to the Soviet Union's invasion. You know, by the time the Soviets invade in December of 1979, uh, 100,000 Afghans have already been killed in fighting. So this is a tragedy uh, and that it has been going on for more than four decades. Uh, the suffering of the Afghan people is just unimaginable. And so in order for this peace process to go forward, which is the first formal peace process in Afghanistan in over 30 years, uh, foreign forces need to leave. Now, the concern, of course, is how will the Taliban react to the United States staying past the May 1st deadline? Um, so what you have here is, you know, I'm concerned, a lot of people are concerned that uh, any action by the Taliban, you know, say the killing of U.S. troops, the shooting down of a U.S. helicopter, et cetera, will cause the Biden administration to stop its withdrawal, right? You know, I mean, you can imagine, say, uh, so you say a U.S. helicopter gets shot down, eight Americans are killed. You can imagine what Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Jim Imhoff, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Joe Manchin, right? You know, you can imagine what they are going to say and then what will be the political force on Joe Biden at that point? And will that cause the uh, withdrawal to end, which would end the peace process? Um, and, if, if, you know, the, 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 the real danger here, Margaret, is that if this peace process ends and violence begins again between the United States and the Taliban, um, there's certainly, and one thing I want to make clear to people is that just because the United States has not been as militarily engaged this last year as it has been, that does not mean there's been a shortage of violence in Afghanistan. Uh, there is, are still record or near record levels of violence in Afghanistan uh, occurring uh, literally every day. So the danger being, though, that if this resumes with uh, active warfare, you know, the United States resumes its, the way its, its position in Afghanistan as it was, say, two years ago, then, you know, how do you even begin a peace process after that, right? That violence then becomes exponential. Uh, the hardliners on all sides, whether they be American, Taliban, Afghan government, do not want to see the war to end. 
you know, they're the ones who benefit. So it is potentially good news, but it's also very quite precarious. Yeah, and also, um, just recently, the Taliban have announced that they are not going to return uh, to the peace process, the, the discussions, uh, simply because the United States failed to meet its May 1st deadline. Uh, do you think it was a mistake for the Biden administration not to move forward with that May 1st uh, deadline that had been set by the Trump administration? I mean, there's a lot to um, criticize the Trump administration for, but a lot of people are saying, well, this was actually, uh, a, a, from the, an anti-war perspective, a good move by Trump. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give, I don't want to give Donald Trump too much credit because remember he did escalate the war. He, he did very much say what like Richard Nixon did uh, in Vietnam, where he escalated the war, increased the bombing, um, and then negotiated. Uh, what Trump accomplished with the Taliban uh, literally could have been accomplished as soon as he came into office. Uh, certainly, President Obama could have accomplished the same thing. Uh, President Bush could have accomplished the same thing. The Taliban have always been willing to talk, and the, the lie that they have not been willing to talk is undercut by all types of evidence, all types of statements from the Taliban, just by the fact that you see how quickly the Taliban agreed to talk with the Trump administration, right? So um, the, the, the problem, though, as you're saying, though, is that the Taliban have now said we're not going to continue with these talks until, the, you know, you, you violated the agreement, you broke the deal. Um, you know, and one of the things that really concerns me, Margaret, and I, I think people really need to look at this, uh, is that did Joe Biden not make the May 1st deadline because the Pentagon refused to? When, 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 when a few weeks ago, Joe Biden said, we cannot make the May 1st deadline because of logistical or tactical reasons, which is completely untrue. You're talking about 3,500 First of all, the United States military has known for more than a year that there's a May 1st deadline. There is no reason why they couldn't have been prepared. Additionally, as soon as Joe Biden comes in office and asks about this, he now has, the military now has four months to move 3,500 troops out of the country. There, there is no, as someone who used to do this, uh, as someone who is in both wars, um, who has done planning, there is absolutely no reason that 3,500 troops could not leave Afghanistan in that time. So my concern is, did the Pentagon refuse to do this, which I think is uh, symptomatic of a much broader crisis we have in this country in terms of our relationship with the military, uh, our relationship with civilian control over the military, of course, how much money we spend in the military, our policies, our priorities, etc. Right. And much is being made now of uh, the fact that uh, Biden uh, is being criticized for falling down on the issue of immigration of um, people who perhaps had assisted the United States in these various wars. I mean, Afghanistan, of course, is Iraq, um, also Syria, and that people were now expecting to be approved to come to the United States as they face danger in the 
country where they are. And apparently the Biden administration, for some reason that isn't being given, isn't doesn't seem to be moving forward on that front. Any thoughts on that? But also um, the fact that some people are saying that the U.S. will you know, rather than fully leave Afghanistan, will be relying on a shadowy combination of clandestine special uh, forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives, and that what is really going on is that it's just a changing of uniforms, but that presence will still be there. Any thought on both of those? Well, with, the refugee, with, with the refugees, with, with the people who work with us, um, it, 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 if, again, I think if you know these people, it, it, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, um, they are not men and women of principle. Um, they are politicians. Um, and this, mm -hmm. this, this goes for those who are appointed into positions, say, like in, 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 in Joe Biden's case, uh, men and women like Jake Sullivan, Avril Haines, uh, Tony Blinken. Um, the idea that they somehow have an obligation to other people's lives is really lost on them. I, I really do believe that. Uh, and so it's easy to see. It's, it's then, if you understand that, you can understand how these people can not do all they can to honor these agreements we made with people. And you can, you can make the case that, well, there was never any signed contract or legal agreement, but that is anyone who's been in these circumstances, who's been in these wars, um, the betrayal of these people is, as, uh, is a testament to really the immora immorality uh, of our nation. Um, it really is. Uh, as with regards to uh, your second point, Margaret, it, it, that's, very, that's very key. Uh, and it reflects a shifting nature, an evolution in American warfare. And we have seen this over the last decade. We've seen in, say, uh, say in the Syrian war, where the United States did not put large amounts of ground troops into Syria. There are a number of reasons for that, but one of it is because of the way that the Pentagon wants to wage these wars. Uh, they want to use proxy forces. So in Syria, we, well, we tried to use jihadist groups like the Islamic State, of course, but we also tried to use what we call the moderate rebels, but we also used Kurdish forces. In Iraq, to defeat the Islamic State, we used the Shia militia, the Iranian-backed Shia militias. And then what we, what the United States provides is air power and firepower and commandos. So I think what you're seeing with, with in Afghanistan is that uh, is that evolution in policy where there will be those unacknowledged forces that are there, those commando forces, whether they be uh, military or CIA, uh, and there'll be large numbers of proxies. Some of them will be contractors. It's interesting when you mentioned the number of Americans killed in Afghanistan. If you look at the work that the Brown University, uh, the uh, Watson Institute, the Cost of War Project, they have done a lot of work on this, and so there have been 2,300 Americans or so killed in, in Afghanistan. There have been an equal number of American contractors killed in Afghanistan. So when you look at the number killed in Afghanistan, the actual number killed in action comes closer to 6,000 than 2,300 because you have to include the contractors. There are... Right now, there are 3,500 American troops in Afghanistan. There are 17,000 contractors. 
Oh my goodness. So right. So yeah. you you have this. That's another way that these wars are hidden. These wars, of course, are outsourced. Half the Pentagon budget goes to contractors. Right. Half the Pentagon budget doesn't go to for, for paying for, uh, for 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 troops and for their housing and their meals and you know their their health care or whatever. Half the budget goes to contractors. So you know, and, and in the, the other part of this evolution of policy, this gives the Army and the Navy and the Air Force uh, exactly what they want because now the Navy can concentrate on putting aircraft carriers off the Chinese coast. Right. This allows them. To purchase, uh, we are going to be the United States will be purchasing um, uh, a total of, of 12 new aircraft carriers that cost more than 13 billion dollars a piece. Our new submarine will cost more than eight billion dollars a piece. By leaving Afghanistan in this way, it allows our military to focus on the big budget uh, wars that they want. So the same thing with the Army. The Army is able to have tanks right on the border of Russia, right? This is what the Army wants. So I, I think when you look at uh, this, this keeping of these, this, as you put it quite rightly, shadow force in Afghanistan, I think it's important to understand the larger evolution of, a mil, of American military power uh, policy and the way the Pentagon wants to, wants to wage war. And in this sense, what really you're, you're seeing is you're seeing that all parts of our military are getting what they want. Right, the, the special operations and the CIA guys—they're getting the wars they want. The army is getting its potential war with Russia that it wants. The Navy and Air Force are getting its potential war with with North Korea or China that it wants. So again, you know, this is referencing back to what I said about you know, was there was the was was the military defiant of Joe Biden and Donald Trump in terms of pulling out of troops Afghanistan. This really shows that we have a very real crisis here in this country in terms of who's controlling the military and who's actually creating policy. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, many people make the case that while one could see a notable difference, for example, between Democratic and Republican administrations in se several areas of domestic policy, as we're seeing now with Joe Biden, that there is really very, very little difference um, with the U.S. policy when it comes to foreign policy, um, whether it is the Democrats or the Republicans. And it, it certainly does seem as though, look at the places where the U.S. have intervened, if you look at Libya, you look at Iraq, you look at Syria and now Afghanistan, I mean, those countries have just been a, a mess, a total mess. Um, so one has to wonder, all of the billions of taxpayer dollars that goes into uh, these uh, kinds of uh, interventions and, and wars, as the uh, National Priorities Project says, that could uh, feed, clothe, house, and educate all impoverished and low-wealth people in the United States. So this was a point 
that Martin Luther King made in another way so very long ago when he was roundly criticized for coming out against the Vietnam War. Well, Matthew Ho, we are going to keep an eye on all of this and likely we'll be calling on you again uh, to see how all of this unfolds. But you certainly shared a lot of information that I certainly didn't know and likely a, a number of our listeners did not. So we want to thank you for that. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your work and for joining us. Matthew Ho. Thank you, Margaret. All righty. We are going to take a station break. And uh, coming up, um, our weekly Earth Watch, corporate greenwashing, uh, what is going on there, uh, and the struggles around uh, biodiversity uh, food based food systems and the connection with hunger not only in the United States but around the world, agribusiness and much more. And uh, also coming up, uh, two activists from the Washington, D.C. area who have worked in the areas of food security and anti-poverty, uh, um, Michelle and Rick uh, Tingling Clemens will be our guests. They're also with the National Welfare Rights Union. Stay with us. We'll be right back. War by the great Edwin Starr. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend Facebook our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the great state of Ohio. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners just north of the border in Canada. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are are now going to turn our attention to our ongoing uh, coverage of the environmental catastrophe. Um, this is our weekly Earth Watch. We partner with the um, Global Justice Ecology Project. We want to thank them for our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute. And I'd like now to welcome our guest, uh, Devlin Kuyek, is a researcher at Grain, a small international nonprofit organization that that supports small farmers and social movements in their struggles for community-controlled and biodiversity-based food systems. He monitors and analyzes global agribusiness corporations, including their role in the climate crisis. And he's based in Montreal, Canada. Devlin, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Margaret. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Okay, so Devlin, just helping our listeners here to understand a few uh, terms. When you talk about uh, biodiversity-based food systems, explain what you are referring to and what you mean uh, for them being community-controlled. Well, uh, it, it really refers to agriculture that has always been practiced until fairly recently. Um, you know, most farms have always had a variety of crops, planted uh, varieties, different varieties of seeds that have been uh, innovated and shared amongst farmers over, over generations. 
uh, and that has all changed in the last, uh, well, particularly the last 50 years around the world with the industrialization of agriculture, the widespread uh, dissemination, well, pretty much a forceful dissemination of, uh, of a few varieties, few, a few different crops, um, and the use of, uh, the required use of pesticides, uh, chemical fertilizers, I mean, so many things that are connected to the climate crisis right now. And really, the, the wipe so much of the, the diversity that existed in our food systems has been has been really wiped out, and the knowledge uh, that uh, went into that is you know, sustaining it and maintaining it and building it up that was held by by farmers has also been uh, wiped out. Now it's still very present in much in, in parts of the world. Um, but it's, a, it's an ongoing fight to to maintain that and to. Uh, to increase it, and that's really, you know, if we talk about uh, climate, which we're talking about today, you know, that's a huge part of uh, real solutions uh, to the climate crisis. Right, and you know, I personally am on a campaign against products like Roundup. You know, so many people they want the beautiful lawns, and you see them out there uh, spraying this stuff in in public parks, etc. And I just think they make people ill. Monsanto and Bayer, shame on them, uh, Bayer mm -hmm. having bought uh, Monsanto. But um, I also wanted to ask you too about increasingly people are talking about regenerative agriculture and uh, the concern about soils. I mean, um, the Kathleen Rogers, who's the president and CEO of EarthDay.org, she talks about the so our soils being in horrendous shape uh, worldwide, including in the United States, and that um, soil used in, in conventionally farming methods are thinning, and uh, this really is, creates a, a big problem in terms of soil erosion. Uh, you know, just tell us about that and um, the relationship with what you are trying to do with uh, biodiversity-based food systems. Dev yeah, Dev absolutely. Um, so, industrial agriculture, it's a major culprit of soil fertility around the world, the depletion of of uh, organic matter in soils uh, through the heavy use of chemical inputs and just the monoculture practices that have been uh, expanding rapidly and continue to expand around the world. So it's, it's very ironic now that you see some of the big companies that have uh, that are really responsible for this uh, expansion of industrial agriculture now coming back and, and saying uh, trying to portray themselves as leaders in, in regenerative agriculture, which is a, it's quite a uh, slippery term and we, we tend to talk about agroecology and that's what uh, most of the, um, the present movement and farmers organizations that we work with around the world talk about uh, agroecology and, and food sovereignty and these are these terms or, or concepts that don't have uh, much if any room for the type of agriculture that uh, corporations like Monsanto Bayer and others are, are promoting. But their their idea of regenerative agriculture, at least what you hear from the corporate sector, is, is uh, uh, it's a very very sort of narrow concept, and it essentially means uh, trying to just tweak the system a little bit to not deplete soil so rapidly and not uh, uh, not be so damaging to the soil. But it, it, as far as a, a real solution uh, to uh, any of the crises that are affecting the food system right now, it doesn't really offer anything. 
Yeah, and you know, it's really aggravating me. Talk about corporate uh, greenwashing. You know, to see these ads on television with British Petroleum or Chevron or one of these fossil fuel uh, companies known for polluting the planet, putting themselves forward as some kind of uh, green or ecology activists and, and, and green uh, solutions. So there's a, a lot of that going on of, uh, you know, the public being told, well, this and that are being done uh, to help to save the environment when basically it's the same old um, focus on making profit and not really giving a darn about people's health or for that part uh, for the environment. So um, your thoughts on this uh, corporate greenwashing approach that is so popular right now, Devlin? Yeah, well, I mean, greenwashing is nothing new, certainly nothing new to the, uh, the big ag corporation. Uh, but what we're seeing now is this ramped up version in coming together of the big ag companies and uh, fossil fuel companies. We're all getting behind this, uh, again, another term that they've, they've concocted called nature-based solutions. And, and what it essentially means is that the, the companies who produce fossil fuels, who produce, uh, you know, processed meats and dairy and, and the, on the ag side, some of the more polluting uh, products, uh, they have no intention of decreasing their production. In fact, they're all planning on, on major growth, even, even amongst fossil fuel extraction and uh, production and sales. Um, and in order to uh, offset this, in order to be sort of considered uh, net zero, which they all are really wanting to claim, um, they're planning to use what they call nature-based solutions. And that essentially refers to reforestation, or what I think is more accurately called tree plantations, uh, conservation projects, building off huge areas of forests where, that uh, forest communities depend on. Uh, and then claiming that, uh, that doing so offsets, offsets their, their emissions. Now, if you just look at some of the numbers, and we, we have an, a recent article on our website that looks at some of the numbers for, for Nestle, because there, some companies have, have put out you know, somewhat detailed uh, net zero plans. There's increasing uh, announcements of companies uh, claiming to, uh, to have net zero targets. Not all have put out their plans. Nestle is one of them that has put out its plan, and we looked at what you know what was involved there. Uh, they are planning to increase their production of their most polluting products by seventy percent over the next decade. Wow! And to and they're and they're still claiming to achieve net zero in that period. How they're going to do this, they say, is one: they're going to reduce the emissions in their supply chain. Okay, and those emissions account for two times the, the, over, the total emissions of their home country. <laughs> this is a huge amount of emissions, global emissions. They're saying they're going to reduce those by adopting regenerative agricultural practices in their supply chain. Now, they're not committing. They're committing just a tiny bit of money towards this. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's $120, $120 million a year that they're announcing, which, you know, put that in perspective, their, their dividend last year, for their shareholders was $8 billion. I mean, so they're essentially committing nothing towards this program. So any any type of practices that might reduce emissions in the supply chain, will have the cost will have to be borne by farmers themselves. So that's important right. to, to keep to consider. Second, they say they're going to reduce, they're going to offset 13 million tons 
per year through reforestation programs and, and forest conservation. Yeah, 13 million I mean, country, that's, that's equivalent to about the, the emissions of a state like um, uh, New Hampshire, or a small country like Latvia. Right. And well, De Devlin, when, when Devlin, they, yeah. yeah, finish your thought, but we, we are out of time for, the, for this segment, but also I'd like you to share with our audience how people could learn more about what you're talking about, about uh, your work at Grain, how they could just get more information and also uh, information about what sure. they can do. Devlin. Yeah, so yeah. just quickly to say, that's about 4.4 million hectares of land we're talking about zoned off, taken away from people. So it's a massive land grab. And people need to understand that. People need to get more informed about that. They can go to our, our website, grain.org, where there's a there's a recent article on greenwashing. There's some excellent stuff that's been put up by La Via Campesina and Friends of the Earth recently on the same subject. Also, the uh, African uh, Biodiversity Center has uh, has put a, a, an excellent piece on, on net zero emissions and nature-based solutions and, and the World Rainforest Movement. Um, I would post, you know, any of those organizations, they have good information now that's all about this topic. Right. Well, Devlin uh, Kuyak, thank you so much uh, for your work. And of course, we do regular coverage on what's happening in the areas of, of food production as it relates to the environment as we cover the climate crisis. Uh, Devlin Kuyak, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. All righty. Uh, we are now going to wrap our show up by welcoming uh, two well-known uh, campaigners, activists in the Washington, uh, D.C. area, Michelle Tingling Clemens and Rick Tingling Clemens. Uh, welcome to the show. Good morning and Good morning. thank you. So, so good to have you on. And, um, you know, Michelle, just starting with you, the previous segment, you heard us talk about corporate uh, greenwashing as it relates to uh, food-based food uh, systems. You know, your work and, and Rick's work so much focusing on access to uh, food security, but also quality uh, food security. So um, why don't you, you might want to comment on, on that. And Michelle, also, you all are organizing an event that's coming up uh, tomorrow, actually, and I'd like you to have some time to talk about that as well. Michelle, let's start with you, and then Rick, of course, weighing in. Okay, well, thank you so much, Margaret. No, the uh, your previous guest was giving out, I think, some very uh, salient information for you, for the listening audience. And just to give it, just to add a little bit to it, we learned that the corporations have even got into trying to profit off of ugly fruit, and ugly fruit refers to fruit uh, refers to produce that's not considered consumable for the for the uh, for the um, automation market because it's not the right size or shape. In other words, it's shaped like fruit or vegetables. But that's you know that. So what happened is that there have been uh, there were co companies that were donating that and using that to either produce meals for people who were hungry or to give the food to people who di who didn't have it. And then the corporations found out, and then they started taking taking it taking over. So they really are they really are uh, making it difficult. For us to thrive. Absolutely. And that's really, that's really so, 
Absolutely. And and Michelle, um, before you tell us about the event, I just want our listeners to know that both you and Rick are uh, board members of the National Welfare Rights Union, uh, founding board members for full clarity. I'm also a member of, of the board of the union. And it is an organization of, by, and for the poor in the United States and beyond. The union is dedicated to unity among low-income public assistance recipients, as well as those um, who are outside of wage work at the moment, and also active with the Gray Panthers of Washington, D.C. Okay, so uh, Michelle, do you want to start out by telling us about the event coming up? Sure do. Uh, tomorrow we are the Mid-Atlantic. The Gray Panthers of Metropolitan Washington are, are hosting the Mid-Atlantic National Welfare Rights Union Truth Commission. This Truth Commission is going to be highlighting and giving voice to people who are, who are working and who are impacted by the economic system, capitalism, that impoverishes all of, our, all of us who work, and whether we know it or not. And we're all part of a group called the working class, and that's basically people who do all the work. When I say they do, we do all the work, we plant the crops, we, we uh, raise the crops, we reap the crops. Uh, so we sow, we reap, we process, you know, we, we make them palatable, we deliver them to market. And then not only that, we, pass, we consume them. So we cover the whole spectrum. But we're the only ones who always have to, to, to beg and plead for what we need. And that's generally a problem with most of our, our, our vital needs. And so that's why Welfare Rights decided 30 years ago that we were going to be a union, because we wanted it understood that we were workers like everybody else. And anybody right. who thinks that child raising is not work doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I could couldn't agree I couldn't agree more and and so delighted that the the union has taken that up but historically going back from Johnny Tillman um, who said way back in 1965 that um, caregivers should be paid right and that would solve the welfare problem but Rick bringing you into uh, this discussion here want you to have a, a few words here Rick your thoughts for having both of us on, and for sure having me on. Uh, I want to add one little thing that we found out this morning, or either I found out this morning, that the largest landholder in the United States is Bill Gates. He owns more. He owns. He owns almost 80, 90 percent of the land in America. Two hundred and forty-two thousand acres. Wow. Yeah. So that's what we're dealing with. And when we're talking about food, we're talking about taking things to the market. And we found out in our work that hunger exists in America is because people can't afford to buy it. So if you, so the only thing that keeps food from poor people is a process or a mechanism. And it's the same mechanism that people who work get. You do work, you, you get paid. Well, if you're raising children, if you're staying alive in America and you're voting, you should also be paid. Well, you know, and, and we should get everything that is offered to everybody. And, and that's partly one of the reasons why Welfare Rights is holding this truth 
uh, commission because we want everybody to know a lot of us are sitting here taking this crap alone because we are isolated, you know. And, and, and this pandemic has played right into it, but we should be able to use this pandemic and the economic crisis to make our plight, the plight of the working class, better by applying the, the understanding and the policies that we understand that should be implemented that will serve all of us uh, or more than we're uh, serving today now. Absolutely. And, and Michelle, back to you. Tell what we expect um, uh, for, to hear on this webinar, but also just what time and, and how people could uh, find out about it and tune in. Michelle. Okay. Now, now, now we're running up against my technological, so my technological ignorance. Because, uh, uh, people who are interested will be able to join it by on YouTube. And I don't know how to share that link, although I believe we sent it to you, and I hope that you have it in front of you. Yeah, we, we certainly have posted it um, on our social uh, media. And also, I imagine the uh, National Welfare Rights Union website likely has information on it, the yeah, link on it. Yeah. And for people who are listening who um, want to uh, participate and find out a bit more, if you just um, email well, just to help out, uh, Michelle, they could email us at um, sojournertruthradio at gmail.com, and we'll be sure to send send the link for that. But what time does it start, uh, well, Michelle? This, uh, it starts tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, and it runs two mm -hmm. hours. So it's 4 to 6 on the West Coast. 7 to 9 on the East Coast, and that's p.m., evening time. So right. we really hope that a, number, a good number of you will have the opportunity to join in, and you will be hearing uh, from some of our people about some of our housing struggles, some of our housing fights. In this area, you'll be hearing about the, the plight of immigrants working to thrive in this community. You'll be hearing about, I mean, that includes people from Latin America, people from Haiti. Uh, we've got, uh, so, we've got, because we're in the nation, because, oh, and I just want to think, I mentioned to people that we're hosting it in this, what we call the DMV. The people outside who think that that means Department of Motor Vehicles, let me, let me disabuse you. That means the District, Maryland, and Virginia, the tri-state area of D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Right. As I want to share that with people, we're also holding it on DC Emancipation Day because on April 16th in 1862, this legislation was passed to, to compensate all of the owners of those of us who were enslaved. That was how we got our Okay, so April 16th. Very significant there. I'm afraid we're going to have to dash. We're out of time. And again, uh, please look on our website for information about this upcoming webinar, the National Welfare Rights Union. Michelle and Rick Tingling Clemens, thank you so very much for all your decades of work and for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark.
Bernie. All righty, we're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank uh, the Sojourner Truth team, our audio engineer, Keanu Williams, assistant producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all please stay safe. <laughs>